Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 90 of Smart Enough to Know Better. It's a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Dan Beeston. I'm Gregoire. And in this episode, we're going to be having an interview all about wooden buildings. Wooden skyscrapers at that. <gasps> but Go before away. we get to that, mm. how's your week in science been? It's, it's been quiet. I've been working on my thesis, so that's been where I've been working, which I won't go into too much. But I, I read something which actually annoyed me. I, to begin with, I thought it would be really interesting. And the more I read it, the more I went, I'm actually irritated by this because it's, I feel, bad science. Ooh. So I would like to share it with you. Now, this is something that's in Popular Mechanics. You think Popular Mechanics is a science-slash-mechanics magazine. Hopefully, they would actually look at things. They looked at a paper. The paper was by a Fergus Simpson of the University of Barcelona Institute of Cosmos Science. And he published a paper talking about the size of alien life, how big aliens will be when we discover them. Ooh. So that's what I went, oh, that's, there you go, it's right up my alley. I was like, that's really great. So he said, okay, human beings yep. are actually quite small when compared to other great apes. We are small apes comparatively compared to gorillas and compared to even things like bon- well not bonobos, they're quite small, they're pygmy chimps. Bonobos are teeny. They're teeny. They're, they're orangutans? Orangutans, they're, they're bigger than us, heavier than us, definitely stronger they're than us. They're heavier than us and are stronger, but aren't they short? Are they short? I don't know. They don't really stand up like we do. We have the extra advantage of standing. Anyway, I was just going to talk about what he said. He said we're at the small end of the great ape scale. That was well, his... But we're right up the top of the little apes. Uh, we are. Like maybe that's, we can, maybe it's just a question of. Uh, <laughs> we, I better say we could kick their ass. We really can't. They would murder you. A chimp will murder you. They will flat out murder you. They will rem- anyway, this is not the point. You're getting excited. I got all excited about being murdered by chimps. Uh, <laughs> so he sort of said, "Okay, even so- the marmosets will have a go." <laughs> well, they're, they're not apes. They're, they're they're primates, but they're not apes. He made this point about it. we are a small ape. And then he sort of said, okay, well, we're also, there are many, lots, much bigger animals in the animal kingdom. And this is where it gets really weird for me. So he said, based on Earth's fauna, Simpson puts the average alien weight at about 661 pounds, excuse me, American, which is quite a bit bigger than us. So he basically... That's what, 300 kilos? He, uh, roughly, yes. So he said, which he said it's about the same size as a polar bear. So that was saying polar bears in space. So he's saying, oh, well, aliens can be much bigger than us on average based on this, this information because we're a small ape and when you look at the animals in the world compared to, compared to uh, elephants and whales and, and elk and, you know, then obviously they're going to be bigger than us. Just let that sink in for a moment. And I hope the listeners are thinking, what a load of rubbish. Because I have a huge problem with this. It seems like it's only taking into consideration one thing. Yeah, it is. And that's populations of sizes of populations of animals. But to me, I went, well, hang on. There are a lot more. If you look at the biomass of the Earth, yeah. most of it is much smaller than us. Teeny. Tiny, teeny things. So you kind of go, what? why just because of species? Oh, elephants got big, but elephants used to be small. Horses used to be small. They just happen to be big now. It's such a weird... Wombats used to be massive. They're, they're Kangaroos probably... the size of a f***ing house. Well, maybe not that big, but yeah. Sparrows used to clomp in <laughs> well, they... on six giant legs well, they and a in... giant barbed tongue. No, no, you don't have to... Well, sparrows did clomp in as giant um, theropods. They were giant. They were big. Oh, that's true. They, they weren't actually birds. But, you know, yeah, they, they, were, they were dinosaurs. But anyway, okay, I have a big problem with this. So you, you can't base it on just the size of animals now and they say humans are small. For me, when you look at animals in the world, humans are actually much bigger than most animals on the planet. If you look at most species of animals... 
we're much bigger than most species of animals. Mm-hmm. I just, just, I don't even understand where he's getting from the idea of that that we're on the small scale of animals. We're we're a, we're a big, big animal. Now his comment is that larger animals uh, have to have smaller populations, and because they use more energy, a bear needs much more energy than than we need mm-hmm. to, to live. So therefore, he feels alien races will be large. Don't even oh, get that connection. Because no, no, no. There, there is some sense there because. If you've got a smaller population, mm. then you're uh, more at risk. And so a population that, that evolves to work out problems and think. Like, I, I think that... Oh, you're thinking it's a, it needs to protect itself because it's small, so intelligence yeah. and useful for yeah. a small population. And don't have to become really creative because mm. there's billions of them. Human beings went down to like 10,000 breeding pairs or something. Yes, yes, I'm so yeah, during the Ice Age. And, yeah. and so they needed to, they, they survived because they were clever. Although I, maybe my, I think my logic's back to front, front there. Yeah, I think they I, survived because they were clever, not they're clever because they, they survived. It's, it's all very, mm. I think this, this just shows to me, this is bad science. I think what he's written. Sorry to say, it's just bad science. It's looking at something and then saying, ah, oh, correlation equals causation. And you're like, no, I, I think that alien life... Like he's saying, I realise now he's saying intelligent alien life. He's not saying particularly alien life in general. Though he doesn't say that. He just, mm. says, he just says alien life. Everything that I've been learning at the moment, everything I've been reading about, alien life, we're learning that extremophiles in the, in the ground, in the, in the, on planet Earth, can, you can live in salty environments mm-hmm. or live really hot. Like, we're learning that, that life can be... Everywhere and every niche on planet Earth, and even smart life. Like, I mean, we we seem to be super smart yeah. because we can make condenser mics and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But uh, you'll never guess what I'm looking at. <laughs> but you can. But uh, <laughs> we're still a pursuit predator using your visual acuity, though. Like but uh, dolphins, can... dolphins are smart. Yeah, and great apes like gorillas yeah. and uh, and primates are very smart. But mm. so are like crows, crows. and so, magpies. Yes. And dogs, dogs are smart. No. They are. Dogs are cats are smart. These are this concept we don't like to think about. This. I'm going to go on a bit of a, now I'm in a ranty mood, obviously. I mean, the fact we don't like to think about animals being clever because we kill and eat them. And therefore. Yeah, they're not we, clever enough to get away. Well, no, they're eh? not. We're, just, we're, we're, the, we're a pursuit predator. I found that recently. Was it Warren Ellis? And by the way, that's not a scientific fact. I don't want, I shouldn't throw it around. That was Warren Ellis, the writer, made that comment about human beings are actually a pursuit predator based on the fact that we, we do chase down, like, the, there's, um, African tribesmen who still chase down a can antelope and you yeah, run yeah. for six hours and you stab it to death. Yep. Now, that doesn't mean that we are at a pursuit predator. But anyway, I like that idea. He's saying very, we're very similar to cats. Forward-facing eyes, pursuit predators. We're just a social cat. Where he's, it's, so, it's, This is not a scientific <laughs> theory. He's just saying that that's... That's bad science, Greg. bad science. <laughs> it's not, I, didn't, I said, said it's not a science. I just like the idea of calling human beings a pursuit predator. It seems to fit a lot of what we do. I must have that thing. Chase, chase, chase. We don't like to think of animals as sentient. There's this concept of sentience. Mm-hmm. But I think they are. And I think that just maybe not to the level that we are. We're not the pinnacle. I don't believe that everything comes to humans or anything rubbish like that. But we have a we have a tool building intelligence, something like, and, and that's different. It doesn't mean other animals aren't clever. They just don't. They're, they're, octopi. They're, uh, octopi can be smart as a whip. Octopodes, and sometimes they can look like whips. <laughs> that's it. So I don't know. I'm very sorry, but the polar, the alien life being the size of, on average, the size of polar bears, I think is bunkum science. And I'm going to call, call everyone out on this podcast. I'll put a link in the in the show, in the show notes so you can read this paper and and get back to me am i right am i wrong uh, why am i right or wrong please let me know there's a lot of ice where the polar bears are i mean less than usual but <laughs> lots of ice yes yes there is in the arctic circle yes very few penguins i like the fact that you had the, your brain thought about it when he said arctic you went you went you, you self-checked you, your brain went 
No, 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 I mean after. That's what it, you were right. You're absolutely right. No, no, no. I'm pretty good with that. You, the, <laughs> it looked like you had a moment of... The Arctic Circle is yep. the one at the top yep. with all the ice. Yep. Antarctica is the one with all of the robots. That's, that's, that's it. Shaped like penguins. Yep. Now, the... Oh, goodness. <laughs> and the ice, it's, it's all like clear. You can see straight through the ice. Mm. Whereas you, you put ice in your fridge and it goes all sort of opaque almost. Yes, right. And then I was at a restaurant the other day mm-hmm. and the ice cubes were absolutely clear. Ugh. And I was like, how did they do that? And so I looked up online and I found out how to make ice that's clear. Is under compression? What you do mm-hmm. is you get filtered water yes. rather than just tap water uh. and then you boil the shit out of it. Right. So it, get, it gets rid of all the uh, oxygen in there. Yes. I mean, there's yep. obviously oxygen bound to the hydrogen to make yep. water, water, but there's also <laughs> oxygen yep. and air that's dissolved it's in solution. into the water in yep. the solution. Yep. So you boil it and it gets rid of it mm-hmm. and then you let it cool down. You boil it again and get rid of the uh. rest of it. And then you put it in the freezer... Yep. And you end up with clear ice. Would you like to see the I experiment that I've run? I'd like to see clear ice. Show me some clear ice. It's like Walter White. It's great. I've, I've created 96% pure ice. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it's not a cube. It's not a cube of ice. No. Oh, okay. So here's the one made with tap water. Uh, oh, it, okay. It's opaque. It looks like a stained glass window that's white. Can't see shit. Can't see, I can see Dan's there, but can't see any features through him. Yeah. It's a, yep. Very good. And this is the one with filter water. Filter water. Here it comes. It's like a plate. It's it's better than it's bullshit. It's slightly Science better. Doesn't work. <laughs> it's slightly better. Slightly better. You didn't. You obviously didn't do it properly. Yeah. Well, not, oh no, it shattered. There is a difference. No, there's a difference. Yeah. The the, the one that the, I just say so the, the listeners can hear the the one that Dan's holding up is filtered water. Yeah, you can see through it. It just happens to be some still some opacity. The other one is totally opaque. There you go. So you just need to boil it more. Also, you need to boil it in a place where oxygen can't get to it. So you need to boil it. You know, that would be very difficult. Because when you boil it, air is still going to redissolve back into the water. Science! Welcome to the podcast, Michael Green, an award-winning architect for Michael Green Architecture in Vancouver, Canada, the friendliest place on Earth. That's very kind of you to say. I appreciate that. We are the friendliest place on Earth. I think that might be true. A little bit too friendly in our opinion. <laughs> I don't know. No, it's not even possible. We're you know, actually working on friendliness. Oh. Do you know that that's actually one of the biggest concerns of people living in Vancouver is friendliness, actually? Is it really? I, know, I know we're jumping right away to a tangent here, but the uh, the truth is... Loneliness and isolation is one of the biggest challenges our community is facing, and actually that's true in cities all around the world because people are more living closer together than ever before but actually feel more socially disconnected. So I actually consider that a huge challenge to the job that we do. And that, it's, very, it's a very good point, though, because human beings, with more and more and more of us and becoming more and more urbanized, and we don't want to bite each other's faces off, so therefore we have to have situations where we feel separated, but we aren't, but we are becoming more and more separated, which is a, a bit of a Problem. Well, and it's it's weird because we, we're living in these big, big buildings and we've lost the front porch. I think we've lost the ability to kind of get to know our neighbors because they, you know, we see them in the elevator maybe once in a while, but... Don't you know, talk no. to people in the elevator. No, no. No, there's like a rule no. against it. It's like being in a urinal. I do. I always stand the opposite direction and make people feel uncomfortable until they talk to me, though. <laughs> Making your neighbors feel uncomfortable is about what this project's all about. <laughs> now, Michael Green, uh, wonderful listeners, is an architect, as you can tell, and as a person with a a lot invested in the built environment of human beings. Uh, but we're here today to talk about something really interesting that Michael has put forward. He's talked about maybe in the 21st century, in the 22nd century, and into the future itself, 
using a brand new or brand new slash old building material that will revolutionize the way we build our built environments. Is it light? Is, is it light? I hope it's light. It's like hard light. Holog- gonna, hard holograms. I'm going to cut to Mike. Michael, can you please tell everyone what this amazing amazing material you're going to build the future out of? Well, it's this incredible contraption that we discovered once when we were uh, out hiking in the woods, and it was called the tree. Uh, when we cut them down and use the wood from the tree, we've discovered it's perhaps a huge game changer in the way we build in the future. And, and so that's what we've been spending our time doing is figuring out how to reinvent wood in a uh, much more modern, progressive, and, and thankfully very carbon-neutral way. I feel like I'm being pranked. <laughs> yeah. Now, really? we've been building buildings out of wood for a while, haven't we, Michael? We, we have for, uh, you know, for millennia. And we've been doing it really well up until about 100 years ago. And then it somehow got surpassed by steel and concrete that seemed like really good materials and are really good materials. But they kind of jumped to the forefront of especially city building. They span great distances. You can build great bridges, great skyscrapers. You can do a lot with them. They're great materials. But what we didn't realize is that along came climate change and our understanding of our impact on climate. And what we didn't fully appreciate that those two materials are also really high energy materials and high carbon footprint materials. How, how is it that concrete is so bad for the environment? Because it seems to me that it's just a bunch of powder and water and you mix it all together. What what makes it so bad? There's kind of two parts to that. One is that Portland cement, the making of cement to make concrete is highly energy intensive. So you have to heat up limestone to, to let's say 2,700 degrees or something. And this incredible heat requires a huge amount of energy to break it down into, into making the cement itself. And then that's the first part. And that, by the way, is exceptionally bad because that energy source in a lot of parts of the world comes from coal and those are high carbon intensive materials. Man. Sorry, Australia, on that point. No, 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 no. That's, that's what Queensland, we live in Queensland on the east coast of Australia and uh, basically we just like to burn fossils to make, make yeah. power. That's yeah. what we do. Yeah, those dinosaurs were not dead enough. <laughs> right, and China's unfortunately picked up on that trend pretty well. These days. Yeah. So that first part of carbon and concrete is is that part of, of cement. And then the second part is just the chemical reaction that happens when you bring water to formless cement and actually off-gasses carbon dioxide. So that's just a natural part of the chemical process. And, mm-hmm. and so in both cases, those impact is, uh, depending on whose statistics you read, is anywhere between 6 and 8% of man's green greenhouse gas emissions come from the making and, and manufacturing of concrete. Really? And, um, that's, that's, yeah. that's really high, unbelievably high. So I didn't realize that. That's, that's yeah, worrying. We're not, and we're, you know, we're not going to get rid of concrete, nor should we. It's got its purpose and its place. But mm. the way I think about it is a lot like food. You know, for a long time, we were eating all these prepackaged foods and thought, wow, this is so convenient and great. And then we started reading the labels and realizing maybe it's not so good for us. And <laughs> we didn't say, let's never eat chips again. We just said, maybe let's eat less. And, yeah. and that's how I, I look at buildings. It's the same thing. We realize we've been building with a lot of materials that maybe aren't so good for the environment. And now we, we don't get rid of all those materials. We just maybe change the proportions of our diet and building. And that's where we bring wood in. And wood, to me, is really no different than bringing produce in, back into our food. It's grown by the power of the sun. It's obviously a completely natural material. It's rapidly renewable. Mm. You know, How much it's, CO2 it's... does it give off? Well, see, the beauty of it is that when a tree's growing, it's it's giving us oxygen, but it's also soaking up carbon dioxide, which is the, obviously the primary greenhouse gas. And as it soaks up that carbon dioxide, that's why forests themselves are so incredibly important to us to protect and why deforestation is actually a huge problem with overall man's greenhouse gas impact. But when you cut down a tree, 
and you do so from you know very responsible forest practices, you actually capture the carbon that's been sequestered into that wood and you hold on to it for the life of that wood product. So until that wood piece of wood rots or, or burns, yeah. it's going to hold on to the carbon dioxide. So by putting it in a building or, or in a dining room table for that matter, you're contributing to one of the two things we need to do to counteract climate change. One is you're reducing emissions mm -hmm. and the other is that you're storing carbon. Wood is the only material I can build with as an architect that, that really does both those two things, at least major material that I can build with. So, we, so it's going to capture carbon, it's going to lock carbon away and as long as we keep the building around for a while and don't burn them, then we're going to actually save that carbon. We're going to actually keep it out of the atmosphere and hopefully lower our emissions. Exactly. Add to that the fact that we ultimately get a really beautiful environment that's healthier to live around than a lot of the man-made materials that we've been producing for the last century. So benefits go well beyond environment from my point of view. And as an architect, I, I appreciate wood that much more because no two pieces of wood can ever be the same. It's this very natural material that I, I think the human species are are naturally drawn to. We are naturally drawn to, to the natural materials that, frankly, we lived around for all of human existence, largely until the last century, where we started living around more artificially made, man-made materials. I think we're just more connected to natural materials. Hmm. Can I ask my stupid question about paper towels? Of course, yes. I put paper towels and cardboard boxes in the recycling bin to be recycled, but they'd be captured carbon. So... If I just stick it in the, the rubbish and it gets buried, is that more environmentally friendly? Uh, yeah, that's a complicated one. No, it's not great. If it just gets buried, that carbon basically goes back into the ground or into the atmosphere. If they were made without dyes, depending on where you get your paper towels, you could actually be you know, helping the soil to, you know, we need to replenish carbon into the soil. It's part of the nutrient systems for, you know, ecological habitat but you know for the most part you're losing the opportunity and you, you i think cutting down a tree for the wrong reason paper products aren't the best reason to cut down trees it's short-lived use of a tree rather than what i think the tree deserves which is a long legacy after its life you know it should be something that we enjoy cherish and, and protect for generations in our homes or as i say in a, even in a kitchen table that you might hand down to your grandchildren now michael just we're going to pretend that Dan and I are not the architectural savants that we are. We're going to pretend we know nothing about architecture. That's what we're going to do. And so we're just going to ask questions as if the audience didn't know what's going on. We know, of course. We're all for it. But uh, I forgot right. how doors work. <laughs> you're helping, Dan. So the first question is, you're talking about not, not log cabins. You're talking about very large buildings, aren't you? Like skyscrapers-type buildings. Right. Well, you know, what we're talking about is more buildings in wood, first of all. And then hmm. second of all, also talking about where are people going to live in the future and how does wood become part of that? And what's happened is people are moving into cities in these extraordinary rates, especially in the developing world, especially in China and India, which means people are living in bigger buildings, taller buildings. And so what we've become curious about here in, in, in my office is how do we take wood and start using it in those kinds of buildings? Nobody has really been thinking that way. And, mm. and so, you know, how do we build skyscrapers in wood? And, and so we set out on that path uh, probably a little more than a decade ago. I started investigating this. And, and what we found is you can build actually quite reasonably 30-story tall buildings and, and even taller. You know, now we're talking 40 stories and taller. 
That seems really, really large. So that's that's my next question from the audience who doesn't understand. <laughs> not you from need us. some big trees to so make it. That's yeah. the question. Is wood strong enough? Can I mean, you just don't think that wood would be able to support a giant building similar yeah. to steel or concrete. You know, it's the funny part. Of the hardest part of my job is actually not the engineering of how to do this. It's actually convincing people that these <laughs> things are possible. Right. And it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a mind shift. And and weirdly, I think, is that we all accept that we get a new phone and all, filled with all this amazing technology every year. And we, we just kind of welcome these new ideas and these new innovations. But when it comes to building, people are very cautious. And it's mm. a very, very slow-moving industry in, in construction to see these kinds of innovations. And the reason these buildings work is that we take very young trees, very fast-growing trees, and actually low-quality trees, and we glue the wood together to make very large structural members. Right. And that's what makes them very strong. By gluing them together, they become very, very strong. Mm-hmm. It also means we're not cutting down old-growth trees, so we're doing a much better job of what kind of trees we cut down. Would it and be then because, stronger just to make but, the whole thing out of glue? Yeah, is that a sensible... <laughs> Yeah, you know, so that's the other part is we try to use the glue really wisely because the one part of what we do that's maybe the least environmental is the glue itself. And and so the glues are getting better, but they still have a ways to go. And so that's a shortcoming for sure. Now, so are you talking about like plywood, like not, well, I don't know if the word's plywood, but um, sheets of wood, then joint, like like sandwiched together. Is that what you're talking, to make a giant member, like yeah. a giant plank, basically? Yeah, we, we, call, we call it mass timber. We call it mass timber, which means big panels of wood, and these can be, six meters, nine meters, 12 meters long, can be three meters wide, can be various thicknesses of glued together wood to make them very, very strong, even sometimes even 18 meters long. And and so these are huge, huge pieces of wood. And if you think about it, it's like a building block. The bigger your building blocks are, the bigger the building you can make. And, and that's really the shift that we've made. It also is a lot more resistant to fire, resistant <laughs> to some of the forces that we have to worry about in building safe buildings, because it's so thick and massive, it's very difficult to get these buildings to burn. And if they do, they burn very slowly and predictably and can be managed just the same way we manage a steel or a concrete building. I'm glad you brought up the fire thing, because I know the listeners right now are just screaming into their uh, buses and to their homes, fire! I don't want to be at the top of a 30-story building that's on fire and made of wood. It seems it seems dangerous. But you're, you're saying, actually, no, it's no more dangerous than being in a steel building, which is still pretty dangerous, you know, that's on fire. Uh, but... <laughs> It wouldn't be more dangerous than that. Well, fire is bad in all cases, but mm. one of the things I learned a long time ago is don't read the comments. You know that expression about anything <laughs> you post on the internet? You know, every comment underneath mine is besides, you know, half of them that say, this guy's an idiot. The other half say, um, the other half say, towering inferno. They love that. That's a, and, and, you know, that's a reasonable fear, these things. But, you know, we wouldn't be proposing them if they weren't safe and that, yeah. you know, we hadn't gone through an enormous amount of fire testing and, mm. and um, sophisticated fire engineering and modeling and mm. and we would never propose something that's not safe our business is about making safe buildings so <laughs> yes. so so you know the the buildings do work they are safe they do perform mm. to the same technical standards of a steel or concrete building so mm. big buildings have to resist fire for two hours typically yes. and the reason they have to resist for two hours is that people have to escape safely mm. they also have to allow the fire department to come in and be able to manage the fire and put the fire out they also need to be able to stand out after the fire so that they don't collapse as a building, which obviously, sadly, we've seen before. Mm. And so these buildings are designed to do those same things as you would be required to do with a steel or concrete building. Right. So how do you guys test the tensile strength of a 12-metre-long 
piece of wood? Do you have like a machine you know, that they just back a truck over it? Or? Yeah, it's it actually could be incredibly primitive when you do this. We were testing some panels, and we we have snow here in Canada, and you know you guys don't, but the um, <laughs> we we really don't. You know, it's like all of a sudden I got really ashamed that we had snow when I said that out loud. But we we have snow. <laughs> That's and right. we it's a and winter it, wonderland. It, we forgive you. Day. It's okay. <laughs> It's, well, you know, and then, and then Aussies all come over and work our ski resorts, so it's a good thing. It's actually yeah, it's, it's, it's it's cousins. It's a colonial cousins working together. That's what it is. Right. We come we come to your beaches. You can come to our mountains. That sounds like so. Are you inviting so, us over, Mike? That's lovely of you. Somehow, I'm going to get to the testing question. In this. <laughs> the thing that we have to do is we have to deal with the weight of snow on a building, right? So we oh, yeah. we actually test these panels where we it's just like you would think as a kid you would do it. You span between two things like make a bridge out of a big panel and then you load it up with concrete blocks until it weighs the same amount as the snow and you measure how much that piece of wood bends over you know as if you were standing on a piece of wood you know across the sidewalk how much is it going to bend under the weight so we test these panels really in some very sophisticated ways but in, in, at other times sometimes it's as primitive as that and you know again they're incredibly strong the glues are incredibly strong and they go through a massive amount of testing obviously before they're allowed to be used, just like any other major building material. Mm-hmm. What about termites? Is that an issue? You know, thankfully not here so much, but oh, um, but yes. Yeah, it's a good question. So there are ways to treat wood to manage termites, but there's a bunch of fundamental design decisions and choices you have to make. One of the really important things that people understand is you don't take the wood and you put, and put it right outside for the weather to impact. In other words, you put an exterior enclosure, an envelope, something that protects it on the outside so that concrete. it finds... What's that? <laughs> two feet of concrete. Yeah, we put two feet of... Exactly. <laughs> a bunch of steel. Um, <laughs> it's like stone soup. It's a... Yeah, is this is my argument falling apart? All <laughs> no. don't Too much to, snow on top of the argument. Don't don't listen to Dan at any point. That's always it's <laughs> always a good thing to take. So, so so you wrap the you wrap the 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 wood in some sort of protective film or something like that. You do it. Yeah, and we actually use borate, which is, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's what you wash your clothes with, and it's a sort of benign chemical. And, oh, and like, you, like, um, uh, like bo- yes, yeah, like, like borax, um, like the ant poison yeah, like stuff. Borax. Yes. Exactly, we actually use that to treat the wood from insects. Ah. So there, it's, it's interesting, you, you drill into it with these little tubes of, bora- of borate, and it lasts a very, very, very long time and actually keeps insects away from the wood. Uh-huh. But mm-hmm. depending on... Depending on where you are in the world, one of the big changes that I'm interested in is we're going to start using more local trees mm. that are the species that actually have uh, naturally evolved to resist fungus and, and insect uh, decay. Okay. And so that's going to be the next wave. So far, a lot of the products that I use are made here in North America or made in Europe, and they're made in forests, frankly, that don't deal with a lot of um, wood-borne insects. Mm. But as we move to the southern hemisphere, eucalyptus, as an example, mm-hmm. is a tree that's being looked at a lot more. There's, We've been talking to folks in Africa about different species there that may be more bug-resistant. One of the great things we're doing is starting to use these very, very scrubby, low-quality trees that grow very, very, very quickly mm. to make these kind of products. We have a lot of eucalyptus here, of course, in Australia, but it's, it's a very hard wood and it's very resistant to pests. 
but it grows unbelievably slowly. Like it takes a long time to grow a eucalyptus to any great height. So we couldn't probably use those in, in, a, in a sustainable way because we wouldn't have enough building material to build a giant building out of it without cutting down well, old forests. So it, yeah, well, it depends where you are. So eucalyptus in, in South Africa, for instance, grows very quickly. Seven to 10 years, we'd be oh. at a stage where we could actually har- harvest the wood. So okay. it, it depends on the species of eucalyptus and, and how you use it. So okay. with eucalyptus, we actually grind it up into its its fiber and then reconstitute it using glue. And that uses a bit more glue, but it makes very, very strong material. And we can actually use branches. We can use really low-grade parts of the wood to now make a structural product and give it a lot more. Okay. So it's not – so once again, just, just a, a mental shift. It's not – carving up lumps of wood into into planks and building out of that it's 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 using it right down on its fiber level it's it's grinding up the whole plant and using the whole thing well, well it, it can be it, it can be either or actually so that when i i mentioned mass timber panels that's the name we give them and they're different kinds of those and some grind it all up and use the fiber and some use planks glued together in 90 degree opposition to each other to make what's called cross laminated panels so there's lots of different ways to use it lots of different species to use it and lots of research that still needs to be done to improve these systems mm. to, to adapt to different parts of the world to you know to make an Australian product and and also do it in a way that makes sure that we're not harvesting forest irresponsibly which is a great risk to this I mean 20 25 percent of climate change is caused by deforestation the last thing we want to do is cut down a bunch of trees and not replant not do it in a, in a sustainable way and not do it in a way that would hurt you know forest ecosystems or, or Aboriginal people of of forest communities so there's a a layer of responsibility that goes hand in hand with these ideas so is there a benefit to builders and architects difficulties that they need to overcome when if changing from concrete to wood slabs i mean there's some expertise there's a lot of expertise on the structural engineering side there's a lot of education that needs to come for an architect to learn how to use these materials as architects i think we're always looking for the next thing and and looking for that next opportunity to make our buildings more interesting better more comfortable for their inhabitants and and so i think architects are you know enormously over the last three years, truthfully. Uh, There's been just a huge flood of interest in this from the architectural community and people giving it a try. And so I think we'll see this adoption and it won't be overnight, but I like to remind people that when steel came on the scene 140 years ago, it took mankind about 25, 30, 40 years to figure out how to optimize steel. And Mm. we're at that stage with with wood. We're at the stage of new wood of kind of, and we'll go a lot faster because we share information better today than we did a century ago, but we're still in the early days and, and our architects will come on board and we'll all get better by sharing what we're doing with each other which is exactly why i do this kind of program now when you're talking about making a, a, a wood skyscraper you're not talking about something from lord of the rings you know or, or something from avatar everyone lives in a big tree i mean it would still you, you could have different styles of wood buildings like different like still modern-esque yeah, yeah well you bet and and i think there's there's kind of two parts to that. One is it's exciting to dream what a wood build, tall wood building might look like and how it might change from the way we think about buildings today as far as the aesthetic goes. That's still evolving. But the other is that just like a concrete building can look like anything on the outside, a steel building can look like anything on the outside. The same is true with a wood building. It can look exactly like a steel building or exactly like a concrete building, but it doesn't have to. And so the sky's the limit as far as the opportunity that designers will have to work with it and the appropriateness. I think the other piece of that is the appropriateness for building, you know, to the local character of a community rather than being generic to 
you know, the way we truthfully have been. I mean, there's something sad about the fact that every city on earth has the same kind of buildings yeah. today. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. If you were in some cities, if, if you woke up in a city, if you're knocked on the head and woke up somewhere in the world, you might not realize where you are mm. until you find the iconic building or the river or the mountain or something that goes, oh, I'm in this city now. I understand where I am. Yeah. Well, I went right. to Vancouver and I, I walked around going, hey, this is like, this is like cold Brisbane. <laughs> Kind of, right? Absolutely. And yeah, it's tragic. I mean, when we when you think about food, if you go back to that analogy I had at the beginning, if you woke up in some random city and walked out in the streets and ate street food, you'd probably figure out pretty quickly where you live, where you are. Yes. But when yeah. architecture doesn't do that anymore, it, mm. it used to do that. And, and now it doesn't give you that connection to place. And, mm. and you know, I think for me, I, I, you know, it's my pers- personal perspective, but I'd love to see these wood buildings become a return to that. Just like you have a unique character in different forests in different sort of parts of the world. Mm. Why would we not let the architecture evolve in a unique way with that forest? Mm. Mm. Uh, now, you mentioned that how we use steel and concrete to build bridges. Is there any limitations to wood that would prevent us from building bridges or skyscrapers that were more than 30 meters high stories <laughs> 30 meters yeah. high <laughs> 30 well, you know, the interesting thing is the current world's tallest wood building is only 30 meters tall so <laughs> right now we haven't got that high we, we know how to go higher but it's you know it's baby steps and getting higher if i wanted to see that building where would i have to go prince george british columbia we just finished it and actually the the tallest is actually in Melbourne right Woo-hoo. now, and uh, yeah, that's awesome. But <laughs> Melbourne has one one story of concrete under at the bottom of it, and if you take that floor away, then then you'd have to come here to British Columbia. So one of the things I love <laughs> and is plus that the there, rest of the building would fall over. Yeah, well, yeah that's <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Small, small. Just, this additional. is a warning to our listeners: don't right. take the bottom well, floor out of any building. That's right. Yeah, it's true. It's very good. Thank That's you, Dan. Never a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know what? I love the fact that there's a sort of competitive spirit between communities to make these ideas happen. So the fact that I actually like poking Melbourne and you know San Francisco and <laughs> Brisbane and you name it, every city should be chasing being the tallest at this and mm. pushing these technologies because it's it's a win for everybody when we do. Mm. And I think competition is exactly exactly how you do it and you know the the skyscrapers of a century ago were were born of competition between cities you know cities like chicago and new york competing and developers competing and mm. and nowadays countries competing right abu dhabi mm. and, yeah. Yeah. and dubai and wanting to be the tallest is how you actually push innovation forward so it's not just about tall because of the phallic reasons i guess but but it's also <laughs> about it's about tall because it's it's how we actually push out our engineering innovation that matters at lower heights to many more people, makes safer buildings in, for many more people. What can wood do that that steel and concrete can't? Is this something you go, when you as an architect, you're like, well, if I work in wood, I can do X, and I could not do that with this and this. Is there something specifically beyond, beyond, beyond the fact that it might save the environment and, and, uh, yeah. you know, and not damage us, which is an amazing thing? Is, is there something about it? Small plus. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I guess it depends on everybody's personal perspective and, as an architect. And for me, the answer is yes. I, I, I like to say that, you know, I've seen people walk up to into my buildings and want to go touch the wood columns or mm. touch the walls, but I don't see them doing the same thing in concrete or steel. And mm. there's a there's a more intimate connection with a building made out of natural materials. And, and I don't know the science behind it, but I, I do feel like there's something just very human about it. I, I like to say 
that wood in my buildings brings nature's fingerprints into the building itself. And I, I think that's true. I think it, and so what I find, my, my work tends to be pretty modern, certainly for the North American context. And what I find is it's the great neutralizer for modern architecture that some one person might be quite traditional in the, the look of a building that they like, and another might be really adventurous and modern. But if I build it in wood, I find it kind of evens out. People mm. all seem, I, I feel a responsibility to have the majority of people enjoy and, and cherish the buildings I build. That's part of being sustainable, is making sure the buildings last for generations. And and so it matters to me when people connect with the building in an intimate way. And as I say, I don't think you can do that to the same extent as steel and concrete. Would a wood skyscraper or wood buildings have the same shelf life as a steel concrete building? Because I know that modern buildings have a, a lifespan where they, where they they get built and they last and they have to bring them down. Would a wood one have about the same or longer? There's a couple of different things to answer that. I think uh, depending where you live, again, it's interesting. Christchurch, New Zealand has just gone through their, over the last few years, the mm-hmm. tragedy of their earthquake. And, mm-hmm. and one of the surprises for a lot of people is that many of the buildings stood through the earthquake but afterwards were surveyed and they performed just to the building code. They were concrete buildings that performed the building code, which meant that people walked away safely and the building didn't fall down. But what actually happened is the the concrete cracks, the rebar inside, the steel inside the walls yield, so it's kind of stretches, and you can't repair it. And so Christchurch is going through a process of tearing down 1,600 concrete buildings and having to rebuild them and, and are really seriously looking at wood because wood is repairable. It's much more resilient to that kind of the forces of an earthquake. Because mm. um, it would flex and bend a little bit more effectively. Exactly. It's got, yeah, if it's designed, yeah, if it's designed well, right? And it, and it weighs a fraction of concrete, right? It weighs about a quarter to one-sixth the weight of a concrete building. And so, you know, when you add all those things up, wood has the capacity in some cases to be a much, much stronger material by weight than concrete or steel, and therefore also last a very long time. There are great examples in Japan and China and Finland and Russia of buildings that have been here for a thousand or more years that are made in wood, very large structures. (laughs) Wood can last a long time. And one of the things I love about it is at the end of a wood building's life, we go in and salvage the wood and reuse it. So it's very common in North America for people to take a wood barn down and turn all, take all that wood, salvage it, and reuse it in a beautiful new building. Right. You can't. You don't see that done in steel and concrete. You can't do it in concrete. You can in steel, but it's it's really never done. And that's because we don't value those materials because of their lack of unique quality and character like wood, the same way as wood. So in part, how long the building lasts, I think they can last as long or longer. And more importantly, I think at the end of life, they can have greater value. How do you how do you demolish a wood building? Well, it de- you know, it depends. I'm really interested in what's called dry construction. So that means we don't pour any concrete into the building at all. So some of these wood buildings actually pour a little concrete topping on the floors. It gets a lot messier to take them apart. And so with the way we've been building, you can literally unscrew the building. Oh, no way! Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and then you've got a bunch of parts that you can turn into another building or a bunch of furniture or, you know, whatever you want. <laughs> but a century from now, I expect most of my buildings will be taken apart with a screwdriver. screwdriver. <laughs> That's so really- <laughs> does that also mean that you could, like, take off the top floor and just add a couple more floors? Yep. Oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> yeah. So it's modular as well then. That's really Yeah, cool. well, as long as your foundation can take the weight. But, yeah, if mm. you design for that possibility, absolutely. And, <laughs> and uh, 
it's cool, right? And it should be. It's, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I often say my job is like grown-up kindergarten. You know, I use colored pencils and I, I cut things with scissors and, you know, I make stuff. And it is. It's grown-up kindergarten. And, you know, we spend a lot of energy making life really complicated. But the truth is really beautiful building systems, beautiful built ways of building are incredibly simple. And, you know, when I first developed some of our ideas of going to 30 stories, I did it with my 7-year-old son. I built my first model with him. And, uh, and then I walked out, you know, I walked to go meet my friends that are, wood, you know, some of the world's best wood engineers and said, what do you think of this? And they all were stunned. You know, they sort of said, yeah, that makes sense. And we've never thought of it. But I think my seven-year-old was part of that process. <laughs> what would happen if you did a controlled demolition on a wood building? Like, yeah. Would you, I don't know. Like with explosives. It's, it's so cool. Any kind of control. You know, here's an interesting thing. We've actually been working and um, the wood industry now is working more and more with with military about building military buildings in wood because this new way of these massive panels actually are resistant to blasts and they're much lighter weight to move around they're a lot healthier to be inside and so they're doing a lot of research into how wood performs under blasts you know in a positive way actually (laughs) yes wow in a positive way so what's holding us back then? It sounds like it's a it's a material that we can sustainably harvest. It's a material that will absorb CO2 from the atmosphere and lock it away for hopefully centuries if, if we build the buildings correctly. It's lighter. It's not going to burn. All these positive, positive after positive after positive. What is taking so long? Why is this not a, a thing that's coming? You said you've been working on it for a decade, but I mean, I only heard about it you know, about six months ago. And right. so what's holding us back? What, what is it just people being big headed about it? Yeah, I think it's, well, I think it's aspiration and innovation. You know, this kind of level of systemic change requires every ass, every corner of the system, every part of industry from designers and engineers to contractors, to material manufacturers, to foresters, mm-hmm. to politicians, to code officials. I mean, it requires so many different people to help nudge it forward that mm-hmm. it moves, but it moves like a very, very slow engine. And it also needs to be done in a very, very safe way. And and one of the risks to doing these buildings is that somebody that doesn't have the know-how and doesn't hasn't spent the time really understanding it charges ahead and builds one badly and it fails. And the whole, you know, the whole concept falls with that failure. And so yeah, we don't like the, like the Hindenburg with with hydrogen balloons. Yeah, it's like a great Zeppelins. Exactly. That's a perfect, perfect analogy. They should have made it out of wood. That's right. Yeah. It would have burned a lot quicker under those circumstances. So, yeah, I don't put a lot of helium in my buildings these days. That's right. <laughs> well, you keep, something to think about. Oh, actually, no, no, not helium. Don't waste helium. I, I, anyway, the... the I think it's. I actually think this is moving far quicker than I ever imagined right now. Oh, okay, right. You know, we we went public, probably most public, about three years ago, four years ago now, with a book that that was called "The Case for Tallwood Buildings," which sort of said you can do it, and here's why you should do it, and here's why it's safe, and here's technically how to do it. And when we when we came out with that, you know, still at that time, the majority of my profession thought it was a dumb idea, a crazy idea, it didn't make any sense. <laughs> and and in three years, and in fact, actually, I was lecturing in Sydney with an, a very well-known engineer from the UK, one of the best engineering firms in the world. And he said, oh, this is not, he's, he was a wood specialist. He said, oh, this is nonsense. It can't be done. Oh, this, right. That would have been about six years ago. He said, oh, we shouldn't build tall buildings above 10 stories in wood. 
And now his firm has a 75-person working team trying to advance their concepts of tall wood buildings. So in, <laughs> in, in five years, six years, he's gone from this can't be done to investing an enormous amount of energy and, and agreeing that it absolutely can be done. And so, you know, I think we're moving pretty quickly. And that's those kinds of hurdles happen now that people realize they're falling behind. And and that's part of the story I like to tell is Australia's done a great job of producing the building in Melbourne. It's the Forte building and it's it's a you know, it's actually just a remarkable thing how Australia's put their foot forward with it. Hmm. But if Australia doesn't do another one, Australia's gonna fall behind and, and no yeah. nation in the developed world wants to fall behind in, in these kinds of technologies. So, you know, I think it'll keep happening because people want to be the best and can be the best and Australia's certainly has already shown that it's number one in this and now it needs to just keep going. It, it's such a romantic idea to think of a city made up of stuff that looks like wood. Does it look like wood from afar? Does it look like like a giant corner of a mahogany table that's 30 <laughs> stories tall? I can, yeah. I mean, on the outside, typically these buildings aren't wood. They have other kinds of cladding, glass, and even steel panel or different exterior claddings. We've done some with wood on the outside, but you, ha you do have to be careful with wood on the outside. That does start to expose it to fire, so it doesn't always look like wood on the outside, I guess. But you see through the glass, you see the wood, they glow in this beautiful, warm light. They're, they really are romantic buildings, and, and they should be. And one of the things I love to tell is here in Vancouver, there's a neighborhood at the University in British Columbia that's building a bunch of skyscrapers and or tall buildings, tall residences. And they said, you can only build them 18 stories tall. And I asked, well, why is it that we can only build 18 stories? This is in concrete. You can only build 18 stories. And they said, well, it's across the street from the forest and the forest is 18 stories and we don't want people to see the buildings above the forest. So, uh, okay. so here are a bunch of concrete buildings being built across the street from a forest that's 18 stories tall. And, and every time I saw somebody building it, I kept saying, are we not as good as the forest can we not learn from the forest <laughs> surely we can do a good job and you know where i live trees grow to be 33 stories tall so those when I things are insane yeah we don't yeah. have trees like that no, here. I, no. I remember seeing that like big redwoods for the first time i was like this is absurd it's so <laughs> awesome right the redwood forest or the sequoias where you see those guys driving their car through the base of a tree <laughs> you just carve a building out of one <laughs> Let's not do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. We're not advocating that. Keebler elves. <laughs> <laughs> you know, luckily we're not cutting down those big, giant, beautiful trees. That's really important, too. We don't have to. We've got this technology that allows us to use the trees that grow along the side of the highway and are getting cut for the power lines. I mean, we, we, we have this new opportunity to do better by the forest. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's a very romantic idea. I think it's a really re realistic idea, and I think it's an inevitability that we get used to these buildings. Have you used any of the technology that you've developed in your own home? Yeah, I'm actually renovating. Well, two things. One is my office is a 105-year-old wood building that's taller than I'm allowed to build today. <laughs> Excellent. How about that? Excellent. I, we won't so, tell anyone. Yeah, it's it's I our did, secret. Uh, I did an interview about two years ago with CNN. It was like the only big U.S. interview I did. And I was lying on my back in my office, which I often do, and I'm looking up at the ceiling, which are these big, beautiful wood timbers. And they kept saying, that's impossible. You can't build six, seven, eight stories tall in wood. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> and I literally said, I am staring at my ceiling that was built 105 years ago, and it's taller than that. So good luck <laughs> telling me you can't do this. Um, and that's the sad thing is, you know, many of these ideas, we were doing this 100 years ago, and, and it yeah. lost fashion for 
some good reason. I mean, they were exposed to fires. There were big city fires that happened. Our approach to protecting buildings from fire totally different a, a century later. I mean, we, we have sprinkler systems, we have fire alarms, we have all these safety measures we put into buildings, and, and yet people still think that we're, we haven't learned those lessons. Somehow we're proposing things that, that are going to whatever, burn, right? I work in a building like this. I actually live above my office right now, and I'm building a new building that's, you know, it's just made with two-by-fours. I can't afford a big house, so it's tiny, but actually I don't want a big house. I like my tiny house. Um, <laughs> but, I, you know, but it's made of wood, of course it is. If you could change one thing in the world to push this forward, what would be, what, what's, the, what's the big stumbling block, do you think, that you could change that will make this whole happen much faster? I'm going to answer this in a weird way because I haven't really thought of it quite the way you asked it, but I think people need to return to their own childhood and think about a couple of different really important things that were meaningful to them. Do they remember having a wooden toy that they loved? Do they remember lying on the ta- underneath their dining room table and looking up at the wood as a kid? Do they remember going out with a magnifying glass and trying to light a twig on fire? All of those, all of those things are things that inform the way we relate to wood products. And Do you remember building a campfire? Do you remember all of the things you learned as a kid about wood and then step back and ask yourself, do you still value that wooden toy? Do you still value that grandma's dining room table? Do you remember that if you took a match and tried to light a log on fire, you couldn't get it to go on fire? You needed tiny little pieces of wood to burn before it caught on fire. If you remember the basic science that we all learned when we were kids, you start to remember that these materials have enormous capacity. They, they're beautiful and you relate to them on a really human level. Now let that same leap of faith when you were open-minded as a kid start to influence your life in whatever you do, including the kind of building you're willing to invest in. I'm That's- convinced. I'm convinced. <laughs> so am I, actually. I'm returning to a childhood state. I'm taking my, all my clothes off except for my underpants and <laughs> running through a sprinkler. And with that terrifying mental the, image. The horror of that image. I'm so <laughs> and you've I'm never so even seen to... Dan, and you can feel the horror, Michael. That's I'm the so terrible. So glad thing. we decided not to do video on this whole. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael Green from Michael Green Architecture in Vancouver, for coming on and enlightening us about the future and the past of architecture. You're very welcome. It's a lot of fun, guys. Thanks. So there you go. Houses made out of wood, and it's coming to a city near you soon. It's fantastic. Interesting, since we've recorded that, I've been reading more about it. And it just in general news, it's been coming up saying, hey, wooden skyscrapers, the, the way of the future. I'm going, yeah, I, I know that. I know that. I talked to Michael Green about it. It is kind of nifty how Smart Enough to Invent it keeps being ahead of the curve on Absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. I'm yeah, sure yeah. we're behind the curve on a lot of other things. <laughs> yes, yes. But, like, you know, getting things right. Yeah. But we're, we're, Sometimes. Very occasionally something yep. turns out, like the fecal transplants. Fecal transplants. We were way ahead of everyone else on that one. And now wooden skyscrapers, which is kind of cool. So I think it comes down to sometimes we don't just copy what everyone else is doing. Oh, we never do. A, never oh, do. Don't you? Oh, nah. Oh, okay. No, I just copy stuff that you do. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> one episode later. <laughs> Thankfully, your memory is terrible. <laughs> You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg at smartenough.org. If you would like to follow us on Twitter, it's SE2KB. How about that Facebook thing? SE2KB. Go along to iTunes and re- oh, re- don't. review us. Don't review us. I'm, I'm trying reverse psychology again. Don't Look, don't bother. Like, uh, go along to iTunes and uh, vote for, I don't know, another podcast. Podcast, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that'd be good. Tell them how great they are, but based on how good you think ours yeah, is. Yeah, you go, oh, you guys are really great. You remind me of Smart Enough to Know Better. Go along a to like... A podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. Go along to a, like a fingernail 
blogger, video blogger, <laughs> fingernail polish vlogger, mm, and mm. tell them how much you enjoy laughing at jokes about scientists. That'd be brilliant. And, and that would get people in. So you try that one. That's something worth a try. Uh, what else do we have to do? We don't have to promote anything except for your thing. Yeah, that's true. That my thing. Have you ever been interested in seeing me in the flesh? Well, look out your window. No, just kidding. I'm, I wouldn't sit by your window. I'm in the cupboard. Anyway, I will... Keep out of the rain. Sensible. That's right. That's true. I don't want, I don't want to be... Uh, you don't know. want to weather that flesh that you'll be in. That's right. That's true. Well, it's not mine. It's someone... The last person I was watching. So, oops. Ooh. I don't want to... It's, a, it's got dark quickly. That's very Buffalo Bill. And now to connect very... Segway weirdly into Science Nation. I have been asked to talk... <laughs> that's what they want to be associated with. <laughs> Science... <laughs> Human tannery. Well, you know, maybe that'll be involved. Come on down. If you, are you a serial killer who likes to wear the human skin? Come on down to Science Nation and everyone else. Are you trying to get uninvited to this thing? <laughs> Science Nation is a scientific event that will be going on in Brisbane, Australia, Sydney, Australia, and Adelaide, Australia, around the month of May. Each city will feature a different lineup of science communicators who will be engaging audiences with accessible stories of science. Inspiration, eureka moments, revelations, side-splitting, mishaps, mishaps and human side of science will be revealed and I am in the Brisbane one so the 2nd of May in Brisbane I will be there with some science communicators and some scientists and we'll be discussing science stuff so the idea is we'll tell a story a really interesting fun or exciting story from our lives about science and then the second half you'll be asking questions to us what you'd like to know so come on down ask impertinent questions to Gregoire about his science background need to know how to fill it a five foot tall Filipino woman, simply come down and ask Craig. <laughs> What's weird is I actually have a lot of knowledge of this from, from weird... By me anyway. Yes. Yes. That's what's weird. <laughs> Never a truer statement, actually. <laughs> anyway, not, not necessarily the racial thing. That was a bit weird. I, just any woman. Any woman. It's fine. I need to speak, stop speaking, don't I? No, no, no. I mean, it's not necessarily racial to point out that it's different skin to different people oh, I different see. places. Right. I mean... Oh, yeah, that's not... Yeah. You know, tanning a Filipino person is probably very different to tanning like a very young Finnish baby, for instance. Yes, so come on down. To, look, this has got nothing to do with Science Nation. I'm very sorry to the... Oh, uh, I'm going to be there to ask questions. <laughs> I wonder whether any of the other people will answer. <laughs> so, yeah, come on. It'll be a lot of fun. If you're interested in Sydney, it'll be on the 16th of May and Adelaide on the 24th of May. Just, just type in Science Nation. Or we'll put the link, of course, in the show notes. It's called Science Nation, the storytelling of science. And we'd love to see you come along. It'll be a lot of fun. It's connected with Briz Science as well, which we've been involved in in the past. That's how I got there. So come on down, have some fun, learn some science stuff, enjoy yourself. I'm technically the comedian on the panel. Because they said, what do you want to be? I said, oh, science communicator? And they said, oh, we've got one of those. You're the comedian. So um, I don't tell jokes. I'm not a joke teller. So um, I'm intrigued what they're expecting from the comedian. If all else fails, pull your pants down. That's what... (laughs) And as we always like to say, it's not easy being green. Michael Green. Michael Green. No, can't, you, don't, you don't like it? Fine. We don't have to do it. No, no, that's fine. I thought that. Just uh, may need some explanation. We'll talk about green scrapers. Our listeners are intelligent. They'll work it out. They're going to be sitting there going, well, how does Kermit work into... Well, well, how does Kermit fit into tanning a Filipino woman and wearing her skin? Forget that bit. Well, what do you think Kermit's made out of? Human skin? Yeah. Oh. That's how they make him so realistic. Oh, right. That's interesting. <laughs> what are the eyeballs? Oh, you don't want to know.
Like it, the fact it was white a really big whale. But no, he's just a white whale. He's just a white whale. He's not a particularly big whale. They didn't go and then Moby Dick turned up and everyone, holy shit, there's a giant whale. He's always betrayal. He's, he's the great giant. white whale. Like, he's great. You, he's great. No, he's not a he's wonderful g- whale. Hey, it's, hey, it's he's Moby. Very big. He's it's, like a great white shark. He's he's Moby Dick. He's he's oh, he's great. Ah, oh, he's you know, so, like jaws to. Uh, to your party. He's, he's a lot of fun at parties. Be like, yeah, wait yeah. a second, this guy isn't great at all. He's just really big. Yes. He's eating people. <laughs> That's a mistake we always make. <laughs> jaws. Oh, goodness me. Make some soup out of your fins. Oh, too soon. Too soon, man. Too soon. Oh, God. Because I just saw a whole pack of lions over the. Uh, so I, I'll wager that when the Christians do turn up, only the ones named Daniel will survive. That's right. I did laugh though. Their, their literal bag of shit. I love that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was great. Bullshit. Bullshit, yeah, yeah. We will send you a literal bag of bullshit. Then people went, holy God, you sent me crap. And they went, do you know what not the word literal means? Watched, do you not know what the word literal means? I watched unboxing videos <laughs> and it was just wonderful. Like, people going, well, yep, that's, uh, that looks like dried cow shit. Um, there was some talk, you know, there was some rumours going around that maybe there would be a special card in there. Uh, <laughs> but no, it looks like it's just bullshit. <coughs> um, um, I'm going to pull, the, I'm gonna pull the, 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 the dried feces apart uh, just to make sure there's nothing in, <laughs> inside the sh- <laughs> oh. And I was like, they oh, sold like 3,000 of these. Oh, God. Whose job would it have been yes. to seal a card inside each piece of bullshit? Yes. This is the guy who uses the game. Uh, that whole thing, never approach a woman face on or from behind. It's threatening. So they go, hi. So you've got to come in between 10 and 2, at uh, 10 and 2 on the clock. So, and, so and either 10 or 2. 10 or 2. Because it's, the centre of 10 and 2 is, is 12. straight on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you come in at 10 or 2, yeah. No, not 6. No, not 6. Not, not 6. No, no, no. Not 6. No, don't come up behind them and don't come in directly in front of them. Come in from 10 and 2 and it's very non-threatening. Because um, <laughs> I see. Yeah. Not the way I do it. <laughs> I'm coming to catch your face. <laughs> Go on a date. I'll kill you. Can I buy you a drink? Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> I like to swing swords. I like swords. Swords. <laughs> <laughs> just, just woke up. Murder. <laughs> what? Hello. <laughs> Came in at ten to two. For you. Do you do you like do you like cats? Like lots of cats. Like lots of cats. All varied ages and stages of decomposition. <laughs> Love cats. Ah, <laughs> uh, goodness. Yes. Anyway. Jeez, you're making it hard for me to get out of your six. <laughs> hey, hey. Hey, at least pivot! 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 Wa- Crab walk sideways away from me! Give me a fighting chance. <laughs> yeah. I'd... Otherwise, I'll be intimidating! Can you guys hear okay? Is the sound resolution alright? It sounds great. You have, a, you have a deep, resonant voice, which is very exciting. It's my radio voice. Ooh. I just put it on specifically for this purpose. <laughs> oh, excellent. I'm normally high and squeaky. That's very good. Well, this is, unfortunately, these are yeah, our voices. Yeah, me voice. too. These are our voices all the time, so <laughs> we're sorry about that. We're not professionals.
<laughs> well, you know, it's, it's you can't help the funny accent. I know that that's just something that happens in your part of the world. Oh, I I think you can find that I can help the funny accent. What's that, Dan? That's oh. Californian. I try, oh, right. That's, like, that's a strong Californian accent that I picked up from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, good. Okay, that's, yes. That's that's weird, but okay. <laughs> We're not experts. I mean, I'm a I'm a physics teacher by trade, and Dan is a, a web a web designer. I'm a professional layman. He's a professional layman. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Michael Green, a, some sort of award winning architect. First, Greg, you should do the intro. Yeah, that was that was awful. Dan, let's start again. I love, I love some sort of. <laughs> <laughs>